I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. No, You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America is a memoir by Simone Sanders. When we met up for a virtual conversation at the 92nd Street Y in September, Sanders was a senior advisor to Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign. Come January 20th, she'll be senior advisor and chief spokesperson to Vice President Kamala Harris. Quite the journey for the young black woman from Omaha, Nebraska, who became well-known as the national press secretary for Senator Bernie Sanders, no relation, during his 2016 presidential campaign. We talk all about it and about the incident that inspired the title of her book. I'm not about to let anybody tell me to shut up on national television. I don't care where I am and what I'm doing. Get to know Simone Sanders and the lessons she's already learned that she wants young people, especially young women of color, to know right now. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post and host of the Cape Up podcast at The Washington Post. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to the 92nd Street Wise virtual event, Simone Sanders in Conversation, about her book, No, You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America. Simone Sanders, welcome to the 92nd Street Y. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm glad to be here. You know, I thought I'd do this in my little couch situation today because every time I'm at the 92nd Street Y, I just feel like it is a comfy, like, setting where we really settle in and have good, meaty conversation. So I tried to create that environment here today. All right. Well, let's let's have that me- that meaty conversation. Um, this book was fun. Your book was fun, and it. It went in, a, in ways that I, I did not expect. It is memoir, it is ad, it's advice for, for young people, it's a, it's a blueprint, and we're gonna get into that in, in a moment. But I just have to jump in right away. Right now you are senior advisor to the Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden. Last election cycle, you were the national press secretary for Senator Bernie Sanders in 2016. For all for myself and everyone <laughs> who's watching, how did that happen? And I want you to start with Bernie Sanders. Why him in 2016? So look, I first want to say I am just again very grateful to be here. And I love that this is the question you started with because I know this is the question everybody <laughs> just really wants the answer to. How did this happen? Well, I will tell you that in, I went to go work for Senator Sanders in uh, 2015. And I went to work for him because the conversations that he was having out on the campaign trail were the conversations that, frankly, I was having with my friends. I, I wanted to be able to contribute to what Senator Sanders uh, was saying. And knowing everything that I know right now, given everything that I've experienced, um, I would make the decision to go back and do it all over again in 2015. I would, uh, if I could go back in a time capsule, I would go back and I'd still make the same decision. I'm proud of the work we did. Mm-hmm. When I made the decision that I wanted to go back out on the campaign trail this cycle, uh, because I, you know, 
I was enjoying my time as a political commentator. I used to go to brunch. I used to go on vacations. <laughs> now none of those things are happening. Some of that is due to COVID-19 and the current presence of the United States mismanagement of that situation, which I'm sure we will have an opportunity to touch on later. Uh, but some of it is because on the campaign trail, there is no brunch. Okay, there are no vacations. There is um, work for a finite amount of time and the clock is ticking as, as we are having this conversation. We are yet a couple, couple weeks, a number of weeks, just a couple though, not that many, away from election day. And when I made the conversation, the decision to go back on the campaign trail, I really, I talked to lots of different folks. As you all may remember, there were upwards of more than 20 people running to be the Democratic nominee. And when I had the opportunity to sit down with Vice President Biden and his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, Joe Biden said to me something y'all have heard him say a number of different times. He told me he was running for president um, because he thought that what he was seeing from Trump was an abuse of power and he could not sit back and watch an abuse of power go unchecked. That he didn't want to look back on this election cycle and think, what if I would have ran for president? And that was similar to something I had experienced. I didn't want to look back on this cycle and think, what if I didn't jump in? And I told him, I said, me too, sir. And I'm like, but except I want to work for somebody. I don't want to be the president. And then Joe Biden told me that he felt we were in a battle for the soul of the nation and that he was running and he would be talking about rebuilding the backbone of the country and uniting America. And that struck me because I felt like in that moment that Joe Biden correctly diagnosed what America was actually experiencing. Right now, it seems very clear to us that yes, we're in a battle for the soul of the nation, um, given the, the we, we are regularly having conversations about white supremacy and neo-nationalists and, and of the sort. Uh, it's very clear that we need to rebuild the backbone of the country. You know, uh, currently today, there are 28 million people who have filed for unemployment insurance. It's very clear we need to unite this country and reassert America's position on the world stage. But a year and a half ago, it was not very clear to some people, Jonathan. So I just felt like Joe Biden was right for this moment, right for what America was experiencing. And I'd like to think I made the right decision. So, okay. But Bernie Sanders was among the 20 some odd people who ran this go round. Why didn't, why didn't Bernie's message in 2020 that resonated with you so well in 2016, why didn't that work in 2020 for you? You know, I just felt it was right for this. I felt what Vice President Biden has been saying from the beginning of his campaign and even before, as I spoke to him well before uh, he announced his candidacy, uh, was just right on the nose. This, this notion that we're in a battle for the soul of this nation, that that is currently what we're experiencing and that is what this election is supposed to be about is something that I didn't hear from any of the other candidates, potential candidates that I spoke to uh, in the run-up to this primary. And I believed Joe Biden when he said it. It resonated with me to my core. And frankly, I thought it was something that would resonate with the American people. Well, one thing, it, I mean, it resonated with, well, his message uh, resonated with the American people. He is the, now the Democratic presidential nominee. But the announcement that you went to, hit, to Biden's campaign resonated um, certainly with the political class and the political journalism class who are like, whoa, <laughs> this, is, this is big. What does, th what does that mean? How did you feel when your, the decision you made was actually news? 
I was surprised. I was surprised. I didn't expect so many people to be so interested in, uh, you know, my career selection and my latest job choice. I, I was, I absolutely was because, you know, I am a, as I like to say, I'm a habitual campaign staffer. Politics is something that um, is important to me. I'm passionate about it, but politics is what I do. It is literally how I pay my bills. This is my job. And I am just fortunate to have a job that helps, you know, move and push the conversation forward in this country. And that is literally, uh, that is literally about making people's lives better. In my opinion, that's what politics is all about. And that's why I do campaigns because I sign up to work for candidates that fundamentally at the end of the day will help make the lives better for the people they are running and hoping to represent. Um, so, you know, I didn't, I was surprised by it, but I'm just out here trying to do a good job for Joe Biden. Um, and <laughs> that's what I thought in April of 2019. And that's what I think right now. You know, I had no idea that we would be conducting um, this, that, uh, that, that we'd be running, frankly, in a general election in a pandemic that this election is happening on the backdrop of a global pandemic and every single day we're learning something new. Um, but I think that given that there's so, I mean, there's just so many things we have to be focused on. So way back in April of 2019, at the moment, I was focused on banding together with my colleagues as every other week, somebody in the media wrote our campaign's obituary yeah. and said that, you know, Joe Biden is, is finished. He's on his way out. It's just a, a number of days or weeks before um, his campaign collapses and we are still here. And we're here, frankly, for the same, for the reason that I articulated moments ago is that Joe Biden knew what America was going through. He knew what America needed. The message that he, is, that he has right now in this general election, uh, as we sit here in September, is the message that he started this race with. I and I think he was right. I just want to go on record that I was not one of those political journalists. You were not. You were not. Because I was like, it's not over until the Black people talk. This is true. This vote. is true. And it, and it proved true. So I want to explain why I started out putting you on the spot, having you talk about why Bernie and then why Biden and why did you do that? Because it all goes back to what you wrote, and it's on page 28 of your book, where you, you, you write, look at me, I'm just me, a bald black girl from Omaha, Nebraska with vision and ambition and a belief that I can do something important to change the state of the world. If I can infiltrate the apparatus, you can too. When reading your book, it, 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 you, have, you, you have and you had life goals and ambitions and I don't even think that that young, the, the young Simone Sanders in Omaha ever thought that she would be talked about in this way. No. You can have the vision and the dream, but then to actually live it. How has it been to, to, be, to be that person? I, <laughs> to be that person. Jonathan, you make it sound so just lofty and... You know what? I view my career, I view the things that I've done in my career and the decisions that I've made, um, I view them as the things that were necessary. I, I view that as me playing my part. Okay. And my part is to help get really good people elected and to help push democracy forward. And I am here working on the Biden campaign, um, because I fundamentally believe that a Joe Biden presidency will help save lives, one, and will two, really, uh, you know, not just 
put us back on track to where we were before, but build back better, as Joe Biden likes to say. Right. So it is, um, I, I think I couldn't have, people always ask me, could you have imagined, like, did you know? And I'm like, no, I didn't know. Did y'all know? Okay. <laughs> Who? Well, I am 30. No, I didn't know. But I'm very happy and blessed and humbled to be here. And I know that I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do, or even colleagues of mine, such as, you know, Ashley Allison or Corinne Jean-Pierre, Ashley Etienne, we are able to do the work that we do because of people like Donna Brazil and Mignon Moore and Yolanda Caraway and Reverend Leah Daughtry, the colored girls who came before us, who put in the work in politics behind the scenes, many of them for so many years, pulling the levers of power, pushing and ensuring that our perspectives are represented in the room, the perspectives of women, the perspectives of black women, the perspectives of people who were usually, who were not originally in the we, ensuring that we are in the room so we have the ability to be senior advisors and spokespeople now in 2020. Okay, so you use one of the words because now I want to dive in into the book because there's a lot going there's a lot going on in your book and the word we. We need let's go through some definitions. You start out the book by talking about we. Define yeah. we. Well, who is we? I, I write in the book about um, the preamble to the Constitution. In the preamble to the Constitution, it says we the people in order to form a more perfect union, but. When they wrote that, Jonathan, the we was not you and the we was not I, okay? The we nope. didn't include anybody here in this conversation. The we was rich white men. You had to be rich and white. You couldn't just be, you couldn't just be white. You had to be rich and white. And I think throughout history, the we has expanded. In this, when I originally wrote the book, I had no um, intention, frankly, to go out on the campaign trail. So I was like, I might as well write a book about what's gonna happen next year. Um, <laughs> and now I'm here and it's like, what is that? What is going on? But when I wrote the book, thinking about this moment that we're in, this presidential election that was upon us, um, coming out of the midterm elections that had just happened, I thought about the fact that where we currently sit in politics is, is, is this, this we, the people, who are unlikely voices. Because, you know, now the we is young people, the we is our, 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 our women of all backgrounds, the we is men, the we are activists, whether we're talking about sunrise activists or frankly, Tea Party activists on the right, um, whether we're talking about Black Lives Matter, the we are all these unlikely voices that are pushing and really directing the conversation that we're having as a country and, and the conversation we're having in politics. And this understanding who the we is or who we're talking about, frankly, and as I write in the book, um, that we're trying to pull together these unlikely coalitions to help create change is really important. So I thought it, I needed to start out the book talking about and defining the we, the expansive we that we're trying to get to, um, because this is a concept I hit on throughout the rest of the writing and really it gets to the heart of engaging unlikely voices and unlikely um, people in politics. And then the next definition is, so you've got the we, and you've defined who the we are. Now, what you advise the we to do is to infiltrate, get in on, break into the apparatus. Yes. Define the apparatus. The apparatus. Well, you know, so Jonathan, I'd like to credit my students, okay? I taught a class at USC in the spring of 2019, and I taught a class, I was a spring fellow at um, Harvard at the Institute of Politics. And this whole concept of the apparatus and the we, uh, I credit my students because I had to teach these classes about politics. And I was like, how can I explain this? So this is the what we came up with in class. And the apparatus is uh, the machine, if you will. 
and there's a there's a political apparatus in this country and the, there's a when people talk about the democratic party what they're really talking about is a democratic party apparatus apparatus are the elected officials the party committees the donors the machine that is that makes up what we think of as a democratic party but what fuels the apparatus what fuels the machine are the factions and if we took time, Jonathan, we could put 150 factions. If I had a whiteboard, we'd do 150 factions on this whiteboard. Um, and the factions are the various groups. Now, if we did this for our, my Republican friends, we maybe have three factions. In my opinion, you've got your um, conservative, your traditional conservatives, your Tea Party Republicans, and your Trump Republicans. At one point in time, the Tea Party uh, Republicans were apparatus adjacent. They were not on, they were not something that fueled the machine. They operated adjacent to outside of the machine that is the Republican Party. But over time, they have been, they've infiltrated the apparatus and now they're a core part um, of the Republican Party. So much so that when Republicans were in charge of the United States House of Representatives, you know, the Republicans couldn't get anything done without checking the box at the Freedom Caucus. Talk about infiltration. So, I think that this idea of um, the apparatus, understanding when we say Democratic Party, what we're talking about, who we're talking about, and what fuels and moves the party is important because the apparatus is where the power sits. The apparatus, you know, the party committees, the elected officials, donors, this is the power. Traditionally, though, the apparatus, it, it, it did not look like, it did not look diverse. The apparatus is not young. Uh, it, there was not a diversity of, uh, a large array of diversity of thought. But over the years, the apparatus has begun to change. Now, people might argue the apparatus has not changed nearly as quickly on um, the Democratic side of the aisle as it should. And there are people who are apparatus adjacent who will say that this apparatus has not even changed at all. It looks the same thing as it looked 50 years ago. But I would argue that the apparatus is in fact changing. And the, the way, um, I think the most effective way you to, to make the apparatus reflect the people is in fact to infiltrate the apparatus. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Um, you, so that, those are the two primary concepts in your book, the we and the apparatus. And what you do is you then weave your story in and out of talking about that. What you do also in your memoir is basically give life advice to, I, I suppose you're talking to um, peers of yours, yeah. um, but also younger people. And one of the things you say, and this has been one of, I'm almost twice your age, Simone, but this is, but we end up saying, we have, I'm reading your book and I'm like, yeah, I've been saying <laughs> And one of them is, 
um, well, I didn't do this. You wrote down all of your goals. Yes. You have goals for the year, goals for five years, big life goals, and then a way, as a way of holding yourself accountable. Why did, why did or do you think it's important that people um, write, their, write their goals down? Well, for me, I started writing my goals down because it kept me focused. Um, on the things that I needed and wanted to do. And it was especially important when I first moved to Washington, D.C. You know, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, North Omaha, to be specific. And when I moved here, I literally moved here just to do politics. I didn't have family in the area. I didn't, I had a couple friends that I went to college with that now lived here and were in law school. But I moved here to do politics. And it was really important for me during this time in my life to make sure I had the the outline, as I like to call it, because it's not a script, okay? We don't need to stick, we, we just need to write down the broad goal. We don't know how we're gonna get there, just the broad goal, and then hold ourselves accountable on filling in the details. Um, but it was important for me that I wrote that down because every single time that something happened that tried to potentially take me away from politics, I had to remind myself that this was the only reason I was here. This is why I came. And if, is this what I still believe um, or has it changed? Mm -hmm. And I, and if it has changed, great, then we need to update the outline. But if it hasn't changed, then we need to get back focused. And so I think for so many people out there, writing down what it is that you say you want helps make it real for you. And then you have to start saying it in, in various ways. And so people say, oh, don't tell people your dreams, so kill them. Where some people you cannot tell your dreams to because they are dream killers, okay? Yep. Mm -hmm. There are dream killers out there. But there, it is very important. I think there's power in um, telling your truth. And even if it's broad, saying, you know, well, one day I'd like to be an author. One day I'd like to, heck, be a ballerina. One day I'd like to be a doctor. One day I'd like to, you know, backpack across Europe. Whatever your goal is, speaking it makes it real. And, yeah. and then it's also holding you further accountable because now you've told people. So are you going to do what you said you're going to do? I don't know. Right. And as you write in your book saying it out loud gives it oxygen. And yeah. in order for it to live and become true, it needs the oxygen. I remember um, doing an event in Minnesota for my college, Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. And one of the young graduates um, was there and he is, a, I'm assuming he's still at um, Minnesota Public Radio. And he was just starting his career and he was asking me career advice. And I asked him, what's your dream job? Mm. and he sort of hesitated but I could mm. see that he had one and mm. I looked at him and I said no 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 say it say it out loud give it life you, you need to do it people think it's you know goony goo goo crazy but it's true it is absolutely it's so true, true. you are proof it of so it. true I'm proof of it and don't let people kill your dreams now the other don't thing don't let them do it so you've got, and, and um, everybody, Simone keeps her outline, she says, in the notes function on her phone. I do. The, it's in the notes function of my cell phone, okay? Password <laughs> right. protected, so the Russians can't get it. Right? <laughs> so it's always, it's always ever handy and ever present. But you also then say, okay, great, you've got your goals. Now, like, how do you go about getting, being prepared? Um, I think you had an interview with a politician, but you didn't have technical writing experience. So you you set out to get technical writing. Yes, yes. It was Maxine Waters told me straight up that, you know, I was very lovely, 
but I needed technical writing experience to work in her office. And <laughs> I was great, but I need to go get some technical writing experience because, you know, the financial services committee, they don't play. And I was like, oh, well, okay, I need to find technical writing experience. I guess what I have is not technical. So thank you to Maxine Waters and her then chief of staff, Tuan Samuels, because um, that was a, it was a, it was a very straightforward lesson. <laughs> and so you went off and you, it, I mean, decidedly, it was not politics, you, mm -hmm. but you did learn a lot. I can try to remember, it was so technical that I can't, I was like- I worked for a consumer advocacy think tank right. and like the global trade division, which That's is, right, global trade. Trade is as technical as you can get. Correct, but it was as a result of that job that made it possible for you, eventually it made you an asset over in, in the world of Bernie Sanders. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, who, I didn't know, obviously, when I took the trade job, I was just trying to, you know, get a job in DC. And <laughs> they hired me, I was like, look, I don't know anything about trade, but I can write. And I do communications. And when I eventually ended up working on the Sanders campaign, you know, in the throughout the primary, um, you know, TPP and issues of trade, it became a mainstream issue. And I just remember working at the consumer advocacy think tank, calling up bookers for shows, you know, trying to get my then boss on. And they were saying, you know, you know, trade is not sexy and the pe people don't know about trade, Simone. We're not talking about trade. You know, if you wanna, you know, give me something about education, give me something about business, trade's not sexy. And then boom, 2015 comes, we're in this primary and all of a sudden trade becomes sexy. They're booking all kinds of people on TV to talk about trade. And we were having conversations internally and there were conversations I could contribute to because I spent, you know, almost a year working on these issues uh, as a communications person. And I like doing communications because that's where you, I mean, the communications people have to take the very technical information and synthesize it into talking points to communicate out to the rest of the world. So I spent a lot of time with some very smart people saying, okay, explain this to me again. And that, was an asset for me when I went onto the campaign trail. Another thing you write about in your book, okay, so you had that meeting with Maxine Waters and she was like, baby doll, you're nice, but you don't have technical writing experience. You went off and you got that technical writing experience. Another thing you write about in your book is you had an opportunity to go to Deloitte. You had something like 26 interviews. You got yes. all the time. And a friend of yours said, hey, you know, if you wanted to work at Deloitte, I can get, you can, you can get a job at Deloitte. And yet you didn't go down that route. Explain, explain why it was important for you to tell that story in your book. I think it was important. It is, that story is a, is a, is a, is an actual demonstration of what I say when, what I mean when I say, you know, keep your outline and your outline keeps you focused. Obviously I moved, I said, I moved to DC to do politics. Obviously Deloitte is not, well, it is political, but it is in fact not <laughs> politics, honey. Right. So pays well though. Pays well, very well, okay, very well. But better than some of the things I was working on, okay? Way, way better. But is that what I wanted to do? And I think that story was important for me to put into the book because I think there are times in everyone's career, whether you are a young person or you've been at this 25, 30 years, where you will be presented with um, unlikely opportunities that have nothing to do with the path that you set out on. And that is an opportunity for you to make a decision. Do I want to go down this divergent path? Maybe this is a sign. Maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Or do I want to stay focused on the thing that it is that I said I wanted 
and stick this out and see what happens here. I decided to stick it out and I think it worked out okay for me. Um, and I hopefully that'll be a lesson for other people. Another thing, um, I brought up the Deloitte story because it gets to, even though you don't tie it to this, but you later on in the book talk about knowing yourself and having, knowing your boundaries and, and having values and how that can help you also keep you centered, focused, um, moored in a sense. Talk more about the importance of knowing yourself. No, I, I mean, when I, you know, I'm 30, Jonathan, okay? So I just found myself a couple years ago, but. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Simone, you'll keep finding yourself. I just, I, just, I just really found myself a couple years ago. Um, and I think it takes people a long time because once you, once you realize who you really are, once you become comfortable with yourself, I think you are more willing to take risks. You are more willing to say no. You are, you know what you would like to say yes to. You're not afraid to ask for what it is that you deserve and you know that you work for. Uh, so I think knowing yourself is really important, but it's a process. And um, sometimes it, it takes, you know, it, it, you, you reach that point at various levels. But I would tell you when I, you know, really got to know myself and, you know, found my voice, as I like to say, um, a thing that I realized is that it is really important to have boundaries. And I wish that, you know, growing up, someone gave me just this straightforward lesson about uh, having professional boundaries. We always, we, you know, we teach, we, we teach lessons about personal boundaries, right? But we don't teach, in my opinion, enough lessons about professional boundaries, about knowing what it is that you will and won't do at work. What, what can someone get you to say? What can someone get you to do? Is there a project you are unwilling to work on? Are there tactics you are unwilling to use? And if you are confronted with this situation that crosses the professional line you have drawn for yourself, do you know what you're going to do? And I think we, I mean, I, I also talk about needing a personal line as well, because there are times where, I mean, look, we've all been in the workplace. We've all been on panels, okay, with people who you're like, okay <laughs> okay what what do you do i mean you what is there's a quote um if you don't stand for something you'll fall for anything and so you need to know um where your what your personal and professional boundaries are but also you have to know what you will do when someone crosses those boundaries and uh the title of my book is no you shut up i was once sitting on a cable news panel and a co-panelist told me to shut up okay he crossed my boundary he crossed my line and I'm not about to let anybody tell me to shut up on national television. I don't care where I am and what I'm doing. You will not tell me to shut up. So you can shut up is what I exactly said. Yes, that was Rick Santorum, if I remember. No, no, that was uh, our dear friend, Ken Cuccinelli. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Who you now know, works for the bad, I get the two Trump mixed up because... Yes. Okay, moving right along. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is from your, your, your chapter, Redefining Normal. And um, this is under, one of the things that Simone does in, in her books, like she's telling you her story and then the font and everything changes and then it becomes piece of advice. Yes, um, I, on the audio book, I changed my voice. I was like, piece of advice. They said, get familiar. I said, okay, now y'all need to hold on. What is familiar now? <laughs> so this is under a word on how you look and who you are. And um, in this, you say, 
if I waited on someone to pick me, I'd be waiting for a really long time. And I probably wouldn't be talking to you in this book. I'm fully aware that when I show up curvy with a low cut, a bold lip, an oversized bow, amazing nails, and a chilling analysis, people don't know how to take it because I'm not supposed to be able to give you solid political commentary with a bedazzled nail, right? I do have a bedazzled nail. And I saw that, which is why I wanted to read this section. There's a lot going, there's a lot going on here. There's presentation, but there's also how not, not just your presentation in terms of the bedazzled nail and the bold lip and all that, but just being a black woman, being black, being mm -hmm. a black woman, and then being a young black woman and how that, all, the, all three of those things conspire to keep people from taking you seriously. Mm. Talk more about that. And what advice would you give to people, um, men and women? Because there, there was some advice in here, Simone. I get, like I said before, I'm almost twice her age. And um, I was like, oh, I'll make a note of that. That's, that's good advice. Talk more about that. Well, look, I, so I'll answer your, the last part of your question first. I have for for the, the things that I've done that people know about. So working for Senator Sanders, now working for the Biden campaign, being a political commentator uh, on CNN. I have, I am usually in each of those instances, I'm usually the youngest person in the room. That's gonna and change, Simone. That's, that's gonna change, hopefully. Gonna I, need change. Some, I need some, it's changed now. I was in a meeting the other day and Ooh. they were like, well, you know, y'all uh, Gen, I said, hold up, y'all Gen who? Y'all millennials, I said, are you? How old are you? Where are you? Hold on now. Y'all trying to call me old. The children are now calling me Auntie Simone on my Instagram. And <laughs> I am like, wait, guys, I'm not an auntie yet. What? So I, I apparently have transitioned. <laughs> so maybe that'll, that'll, that'll help me in my next meeting. So I'm now a part of the auntie crew. But uh, up until now, I was one of the youngest people in the room. And I will tell you, what I learned early on is that yes, to your point, because I am the youngest person in the room and oftentimes because people are not used to seeing people that look like me um, occupy the spaces that I've occupied, people assume that I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about. I had people tell me in 2015, 2016 that, well, they were very sure I was only there because Senator Sanders was having issues with the African-American community and they just hired a random black girl to be the press secretary to fix those issues for optics, not because I knew the role. And I was like, oh, oh I need to leave. I need to leave this, this, this restaurant situation because I, mm, we are confused. Um, but th that's, people believe that. So I learned early on that I have to ensure that I have uh, the facts, that I come to the conversation with data, that I am, you know, backing up what I'm saying with factual information and citing sources uh, so that I can be believed, for lack of a better term. And it ended up coming in handy because when you're on television, as you well know, uh, you always need a little, a little sight. You need some facts to back up what you're saying when you're speaking to millions of people. And I've taken that into, you know, every workplace that I've, I've ever had. But it is, it is, it is jarring to me the ways in which people will tell you what you cannot do. When I um, left, the, I, t I write about this in the book, when I left the campaign in 2016, I didn't know what I was gonna do. I ended up though, I was still doing television. And I thought, oh, well, I see people are getting paid to do this. They keep asking me, maybe I too can get paid. And I set out, people told me I needed an agent. So I went out to look for an agent 
And a couple agents told me a number of different things. Someone told me I needed voice lessons because I didn't sound like um, what people were used to hearing when they turned on the television and watched the news. Someone told me um, that, you know, oh, well, someone straight up told me I was just not gonna um, get a contract at all. Someone else told me I wasn't palatable enough for cable television. And that palatable was very loaded. I didn't know if oh, I yeah. was too black, too big, too loud. I was unsure about what, what not palatable meant. Um, but if I listen to all those folks, we probably wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. Uh, so it is just really important that, in my opinion, and the advice I would give to young people especially is don't let anyone tell you what you can do. You need to show them. You need to you know, ask for what it is that you want, go after the things that you know you deserve and that you work for, but you need to be able to perform when you get there. And I think you know, we've all known folks who have gotten into various places and spaces and then they get to the job and they can't perform. So as a young person, especially, I could be able to perform when I get there because, uh, you know, it could, it could be the last rodeo for all young people coming after me if I don't do well. So, Simone, I swear, sometimes I think we're the, we're the same person because in, in the story, <laughs> you write about how when someone asks you for what you want, tell them yes. because you never know what they're going to say. They could actually say yes. And I had that situation in my own career. And that's what happened with you when you had the interview with Jeff Weaver, campaign manager for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 cycle. And he asked you, what do you want? You said, I want to be national press secretary. <laughs> exactly. Now, did I think they were going to make me the national press secretary? I don't know. But it was the job that I would like to have. And if you're going to ask me what I would like, I'm going to tell you what I want. I'm going to let you tell me no. And I think that, um, Jonathan, you and I, we're very clear that we should just, you know, we're going to let people tell us no. Okay, you're, you're not going to wonder what it is that I want, I'm going to ask for. But there are so many people out there who are not asking for what it is that they know that they've worked for and that they deserve. They ask for the thing right up under it because they believe that's the thing um, that people will give them, that that is the thing that's more palatable and digestible, and more feasible. It's kind of like that question of like, what do you want for dinner? And sometimes we I'm know we want for dinner. Question though. Don't that you know what you want for dinner. Sometimes though, what you want for dinner, it might be cheesecake, okay? It might be that <laughs> restaurant where you know you're not supposed to be eating because of the calories. It <laughs> might be, you know, it, 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 it might be you're not hungry. But I think we know what we want for dinner. So just say it, you just might get it. You know, the, um, you write something else um, in your book and when it comes to women, and that is women are all nice. Mm. The adjective of being nice. And you're like, forget that. I don't, I don't care if you think I'm nice. Why is it important that, um, that women especially, but this is broad advice that you give, but why should women not worry about being nice? I will tell you, I think frankly, women are the only people in the workplace that are uh, thinking about or even given the advice that you should, you should be thinking about being a nice person at work. Uh, men are told to be assertive. They're told to think about being hardworking. They're encouraged, you know, to be go-getters and to be aggressive. And if you are a woman, it's like, oh, but are you, I think you need to be concerned about how nice you are. How do you come off? And I think at the end of the day, what matters is your work product. And what, what matters, I, I think being nice hinders the concept of, of niceness, the concept of being nice in the, work, in the workplace is literally only something we say to women, as I just described, so it hinders you. I think that we, I want to be kind 
right? I don't want anybody to think that I'm a terrible person to work with. I would like to have an enjoyable work experience and I want people to have an enjoyable work experience working with me, but I don't care if you think I'm nice. So I'm not here to be nice, I'm here to be effective. And so I don't know if nice is a term that people use to describe me at work, anyone who's ever worked with me, but I do think what they say is I'm effective. I think what they say is I'm assertive. I think what they say is that I'm a team player. They probably don't say I'm nice. I think they also might say sometimes I'm a little loud. Uh, you know, but I'm nice is not a word they use and nice isn't a word I need them to use. What we should be worried about is being effective, being good team players. Uh, sometimes that requires you not to be nice. Right. And so, you know, when I read that part in the book, it took me to what happened during the vice presidential search mm. and the story that came out, I guess maybe a week or two before Kamala Harris, Senator Harris was named as the vice presidential nominee where someone on the search committee apparently said, this came out by way of friends of this person, that this person had a problem with Senator Harris because she didn't show any remorse uh, about the June debate. And then this, the uproar came about, why does she have to show remorse? Show a man running for president. Oh, and that she's also too ambitious. She's so ambitious. And it's like, show a man who's running for president who's not ambitious or who ran for president is not ambitious, a vice president who's not ambitious. Isn't that part of the job? <laughs> this is why we still have work to do, Jonathan. This is why there's still work to do out there in the world. I will say this, Udell, um, as our campaign manager, John Miley Dillon tweeted at the time of this hubbub about ambitious women. And as Senator Harris herself said, when she, in her first public remarks, um, after she was announced as Vice President Biden's running mate, um, she stands on the shoulders of uh, a long line of ambitious women. We all do. The, we, they're ambitious women that I work with every single day. And as General Molly Dillon said, whoever our running mate is going to be, you'll be damn sure that she's an ambitious woman. Well, I think we got that uh, with Senator Kamala Harris. And I, <laughs> there's just double standards. You know, Donna Brazil uh, taught me a lesson uh, a couple years ago that I have never forgotten. And, the, and the, the, the crux of the lesson is that the isms aren't going away tomorrow. Not sexism, not racism, not ageism, not ableism. The, the isms are not going away tomorrow. We have to call it out when we see it. We need to work to eradicate them. We need to work every day to combat them. Like it is, it is, it is a constant battle, but we also have to figure out how to navigate through the isms. And uh, it's a lesson that obviously as a, you know, a young black woman, I am regularly, I'm still learning every single day. And, you know, sexism is real. Racism is very real. Ageism is very real. But I cannot let the, we cannot allow the isms to block us from the work because being able to navigate through the isms is the way and is part of how we can eventually eradicate them. We're, we're getting to the to the end of our time together, which I cannot believe so much time has gone by. So let's come back to the beginning, and that's the 2020 presidential campaign. Do you think that President Trump's sort of campaign of fear that he's waging, will it work? And campaign of fear directed squarely at white voters. And we know the power of whiteness and the power of white supremacy. Even in 2020, your view 
of how effective that kind of campaign will be? So look, I think that we, if we don't have to guess on if the president's campaign affair is working, we can look at the polls. And if you look at the polls, voters across battleground states trust Joe Biden the most to keep them safe. They trust Joe Biden to handle the very pressing issues uh, as it relates uh, to what's happening, the, the various crises that we're experiencing in this country. Now, I think President Trump's and the Trump campaigns, and I would argue the Trump administration's um, campaign of fear and their message of uh, they're trying to scare people. They're trying to scare people from going to the polls. They're trying to scare people into um, uh, supporting the president with this kind of law and order message. And it, it, it makes me laugh um, because I, I wonder if, the, if Donald Trump remembers that he is, in fact, the president. And, you know, talking about like, you know, in Joe Biden's America, you won't be safe. Well, hold on, sir. With all due respect, this is Donald Trump's America. And we are not safe now. We're not safe from COVID. We, it's not safe for folks to send their, their children into schools and know for a fact that they, that, 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 that there will be no danger to, that will come to them in, in places all across this country this month. People are having schools in their living rooms and their kitchen tables and corners in their bedrooms that they've converted into makeshift classrooms because the president has failed to put a plan together to mitigate the coronavirus. You know, folks aren't safe from um, the president inciting violence in this country. So the real question I think that voters should ask themselves is in fact, are you safe in Donald Trump's America? And we would argue that the answer is no. Look around, look at what's happening. Donald Trump has been president for four years, and, and he's, he's been managing this uh, COVID-19 pandemic for eight months, and we still don't have a plan to mitigate this virus. We still have yet to see his infrastructure plan, even though it's been infrastructure week, Jonathan, since the beginning of the administration. So ask yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, who do you want to send back to Washington, D.C.? Who do you want in the White House? Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is our answer. <laughs> Simone Sanders, um, earning, earning your keep as a senior advisor to the Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden. You were here talking about your, your new book, No, You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America. There is so much more in this book that we could not get to um, that I wish we could have talked about that time you got arrested. Oh, yeah. Um, that which was actually rather scary, that time um, that a person on the campaign stood in the gap and took care of you and why that's, and why that's important. So if you wanna know what those stories are, pick up Simone Sanders' book. In the meantime, Simone, good luck and be safe on the campaign trail. Thank you, Jonathan. It's always good to see you and hopefully we will see you soon. I know I've been seeing you on my TV, okay? So if I don't, <laughs> if I don't see you in person, I will be watching you, my friend. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.